I am so happy to be here with you guys. And, uh, and the, my new role at Open Doors that Father Aaron just mentioned has actually just started. And um, what it's done is it's launched me into reading all these stories of the persecuted church. And as I was putting together this sermon on the book of Revelation and reading stories of the persecuted church, I just couldn't help but see the connection. So I'm going to start off uh, this teaching with a couple of stories from the persecuted church. So the first one is about a young woman named Vibia. She was 22. She lived in a part of the world that we know as Tunisia. She became a Christian at a time and a place where it was really hard to become a Christian. Her family pleaded with her to not be. They knew that she could probably die because of that profession of faith. And she had just given birth to a son. And sure enough, the local government imprisoned her. And initially, they separated her from her baby. They put her in a crowded, dark place. It was incredibly uncomfortable for her. It seems to have been pretty soon after childbirth. After a little while, she was reconnected with her infant son. She was able to nurse him in prison for months while she awaited trial. And finally, at her trial, she was sentenced to death, and she was executed, along with four other Christians. Another one of them was actually another young nursing mother that was executed. That's one story. Here's another story. There's another young woman named Samita. Samita lives in a different part of the world, um, but it's, a, it's similar in this sense that in her part of the world, it's really hard to be a Christian. Most people aren't Christians. Uh, the culture is really hostile to Christianity. And Samita actually has to face the choice to continue to be a Christian because when she was younger, her father was a Christian. But he began to go blind and as he began to lose his sight, he prayed for Jesus to heal him, and healing didn't come. So he renounced his faith, and he demanded that everyone in his family renounce their faith, but Samita didn't want to, so she hid her Bible in a field. Her mother found the Bible, burned it in front of her eyes, and dragged her through town by her hair, beating her with a rod, calling down shame upon her. Samita is 26, so she's too old to be considered a bride in her culture. So her, her parents said, we don't have any room for you. You're supposed to have been married. No one's going to marry you. You have to leave our house. But in her culture, she has nowhere to go. A woman who's off on her own is considered a prostitute. So she went to live in the shed where they keep the animals. Now, these two stories of persecuted Christians take place really far apart. The first young woman, her name is Vibia Perpetua. We know her as Saint Perpetua. That happened in 203 that she was executed, 203 AD. But Samita is alive right now. And she's still in persecution. She's in contact with Christians who may be able to help her, but it might not be safe yet for her to try 
and it might not be safe yet for them to try. So we continue to pray for Samita. And we're going to pray for her at the end of this sermon for sure. But the book of Revelation was written for the church. And the book of Revelation was written for the church that might be saying, if Christ is risen, if Christ has trampled death by death, then how could this be happening? And this book, this vision that we are going to read today, the vision of the Son of Man, is the beginning of the answer to that question. I believe that the entire book of Revelation is the full answer to that question. That's one way that you could read this book. If Christ has risen from the dead, how could this be happening? But I also believe that this passage we're going to read today is like the beginning of the answer to that question. Because this vision of the Son of Man who comes with the full power, the full majesty, the full authority, the full judgment of God, that's a vision that was given to the seven churches that we read about in the book. That's a vision that was given to Perpetua of Carthage. That's a vision, that vision of the Son of Man coming with power and justice is a vision that's given for Samita. And that's a vision that is given to the church right here, right now. It's a vision that's been written down for every Christian who's saying, if Christ is risen from the dead, how could this be happening? And since the book of Revelation is the answer, we're going to start getting that answer today in this passage. And here's what I think this passage, here's what I think this vision of the Son of Man tells us. It says, Jesus is the one person in all the world that you can trust with everything. That's just the beginning of the answer. It's, it's loaded, it's pregnant with meaning that needs to be unpacked. But that's what this vision says to us. Jesus is the one person in the whole world that you can trust with everything. So let's look uh, at the text here. All right. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I, I, have, uh, I had a prof in college who used to point out that you don't get the kingdom without the tribulation and also the patient endurance. I think it's a good point. So John was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book. There's going to be a similar command in verse 19 below, where he says, 
Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. What's, what's really important to get here is that John is being given a vision. The voice doesn't say, write down the doctrine that you're about to hear. Write down the law that you're about to hear. Write down the narrative that I'm about to tell you. The voice says, write down what you see. Because what's going to happen in this vision is that truth, which is usually hidden from our sight, truth that's usually only known by faith, communicated to our spirits by the Holy Spirit, is going to be made visible. It's going to be made sensory. John's going to experience truth. Truth is going to shine through the heavenly veil, and it's going to project images onto earthly realities. A lot of times those images are going to take up the language of the Old Testament. So it's going to, we're, going to, we're going to jump back and forth into the Old Testament a little bit today. Um, but when you get this imagery, what you're doing is you're seeing the true meaning of the things that we know in our physical everyday lives. You're beginning to see the heavenly meaning of them. So in this case, lampstands are how the church is depicted. Because a lampstand is just like the lampstands in the temple. It's, it's the place where the light of God shines into the world, just like in the Old Testament temple. And the angels of the churches are stars. And this harkens back to this Old Testament image of the host of heaven ruling the nations of the world. And what we see is that the Son of Man holds the stars in his right hand. The stars are the angels of the churches. God, through the church, has brought the nations into Christ's right hand. So the reason we're seeing these visions is so that we can actually begin to look beyond the reality that we see and see the heavenly truth. But the central vision that we encounter in this passage is the vision of the Son of Man. And this is the image that begins to answer our question. And we don't just get a vision we get a vision, and then we get an explanation. That's a formula that's really common in Revelation and other writings of this type. And I believe that this vision, this explanation, gives us this word of assurance that says Jesus Christ is the one person that we can trust with everything. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When I, when I lived in North Africa, I remember there was a time that I was sitting around with a group of my North African friends, and they looked across the souk, and they saw an American guy walking, and 
I could tell they probably thought this dude was like a spy or you know a secret agent, CIA, something like that. That's a pretty common suspicion uh, when you see Americans walking through the souk in North Africa. Um, and one of my one of my friends just went. I'm sitting next to him, and he goes, Whew. and I said, "What?" And he just he just said with almost this like note of like reverence and awe in his voice. He just said, "That is a dangerous man." Guys, Jesus in this passage is a dangerous man, okay? Let's, let's unpack some of the imagery that's going on here. Um, so for one thing, it mentions that Jesus comes, he, that he sees one like a son of man. He has hair that's white like wool, white as snow. This is not the first vision that appears in the Bible where this imagery gets taken up. Actually, this is pulled directly out of a vision in the book of Daniel. It's a little too long for us to read. I'm going to give you a quick snippet of it so you can see what's going on. But in Daniel, there's this big, this vision that Daniel has where he sees a courtroom. And he sees these beasts rise up, and the beasts are the nations of the earth. They're evil nations. And then he sees God Almighty, and God Almighty is pictured as an old man with hair white like wool, white as snow. And God judges the evil nations and takes everything away from them. And then he sees one like a son of man. It's kind of a weird phrasing that means one thing in Hebrew, but really got picked up and used a lot by Jewish thought for the, for the next 500 years. And he sees one like a son of man show up, and it's this messianic figure representing the saints of God. And the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, with the white hair, gives judgment against the nations of the world, the beasts, and he gives everything that he took away from them, he gives it to the Son of Man. He becomes the victor in this courtroom scene. And when we look at this vision where Jesus shows up and he shows himself to John in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, yeah, so I'm, I'm the Son of Man. I'm one who's like the Son of Man. I'm that guy. Uh, I'm also the judge in that scene. That's a dangerous man. He's the judge, and he's also the victor of the courtroom scene. And if you're wondering why Jesus is allowed to be this, uh, he's got a golden sash, so he's a king. He's got bronze feet that have been refined. He is pure. But then, I, I love this, verse 15, he's got a voice that's like the roar of many waters. And that is straight up the way that Ezekiel describes the sound of God Almighty. That's why Jesus is allowed to be those things. And then this passage of Jesus as a dangerous man, it finishes with this image. It says, his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. That's, that's, that's a quote from the end of the Song of Deborah. It's in Judges. If you're not sure where that comes in, it comes in right after the woman, Gile, uh, has just delivered God's judgment against Sisera via tent peg, okay? And Deborah sings this song, and it's more or less like, may everybody who stands against God go down like that, but the, but the righteous judge who rises up out of this, let their face shine like the, the sun in its full strength. That's the image of Jesus rising from righteous judgment. That's what we're getting out of this vision. 
My friend would, if my friend saw this, he would, he would look across and he would just say, Phew, Jesus is a dangerous man. And guys, judgment isn't a happy thought, okay? We don't like it. And I'm, I'm going to address that, but not yet, because Jesus explains the vision, and we need that. Let's keep going. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and he said, fear not. Now, for some of us, that actually might be the whole message that you need to hear. You just need to hear that even though Jesus shows up with power as the righteous judge, he lays his right hand on you. He says, fear not. I don't come to destroy. You can trust me. Let's keep going. John gives us some reasons, though. He says, fear not. And I think what follows are, here's why you shouldn't have to fear. Fear not. I am the first and last. That's how Almighty God is described in Isaiah. That's how John has previously almost just described God in, in like verse 8 or so, I think, above this passage. The Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I am the first and last. And that's an important description. Because sometimes I think we think and we act as if we have some we have some information, we have some special insight that would really benefit God in his judgment. <laughs> and we think and act that way because we're really used to interacting with human judges. So I think it actually makes sense. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed someone to make a special, a special allotment for you? you? Maybe you needed an extension on some kind of an, ex, an assignment. And you know that actually your case is good. If they just knew the situation that you were in, they would, they would judge in your favor. So you're going to marshal your case. That's some information that they really need to have to decide this. Other times, we've actually seen in our lives, we've seen judges make decisions that were not compassionate. Judges make decisions that really offend uh, our sense of, of mercy. Sometimes they're decisions where we see families being separated, children being taken away, children being treated really roughly. And so these impulses to say judges need to have some kind of check, that comes from our interaction with human judges. This word that Jesus is the first and last is so important. He hasn't just seen it all. Jesus has been holding it all together through it all. Jesus can make that case for you. He can make that case better than you can make it for yourself, and he will. And that sense of mercy and compassion that wells up inside of us, that 
When we begin to talk about judgment, sometimes we start to worry that maybe something really unmerciful, maybe something really uncompassionate is about to happen. Jesus is the author of mercy and compassion. So Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and last. And then he says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. See, Jesus' judgment has begun, and Jesus has begun to judge death and suffering. Jesus has begun to judge the evil in the world He is judging against it, and Jesus is judging for life. Jesus' judgment has begun. So let's go back to the question that I said the church might be asking of the book of Revelation. If Jesus is risen from the dead, how could this be happening? Throughout the world, Our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing horrible persecution. And sometimes we in the American church talk about the end times and we say things like, wow, there's really going to come an age. There's really going to come a time where persecution's going to get really bad. But friends, that is every day for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are living through it. And that's every day, somewhere, for the last 2,000 years. St. Perpetua knew it. And even setting aside for a moment the concept of suffering for your faith, some of us are just suffering, right? We're suffering with depression. We're suffering with economic problems. We're suffering with relationships. We're suffering with our physical health. And beyond the individual scope, right now at a much larger level, we are seeing the powers of death and hell in the wars, in the famines in the pestilence that has spread throughout our world. And if anyone besides Jesus were to walk in and say, fear not, I can fix this. Any politician, uh, if any technologist were to walk in and say, fear not, I have a platform that will ensure human flourishing and justice. We would look at them and we would say, you egomaniac. Or maybe we'd look at them and we'd say, you poor fool, right? Because no one else can provide a reason to hope that justice is coming. No one else 
can do that. But that's not who comes to us. Who comes to us is the one whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose voice is like the roar of many waters. And he says, fear not. I am the first and last. I have the keys of death and Hades. We see in the vision of Jesus Christ, the risen Son of Man, we see the one person that we can trust. When we ask that question, if Christ is risen, how could this be happening? In this vision, Jesus says, fear not. You can trust me. That's the beginning of the answer that I believe the book of Revelation gives. I'd just like us to close by praying for the persecuted church, especially Samita. Would you bow your heads? Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your power, for your justice. Lord, we cry out for our brothers and sisters who suffer. And we pray especially for Samita today. Oh God, we ask that you would guard her heart from bitterness. Oh God, we ask that you would give her the vision of the Son of Man who comes in power, of the Son of Man whom she can trust entirely. Father, we pray in accordance with your word, Deliver your saints. Father, we pray in accordance with your word, bring your kingdom. Destroy the works of the enemy. Bring life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.